Uh, it's never nice to be overlooked, is it? To be sidelined, marginalised, passed over for someone else. Uh, maybe you remember at school when you're in the playground and the, the sporting teams, the two captains were there and they'd pick the strong ones, the tall ones, the popular ones, and then it was just you. And the two teams were over there and you were left. It's not nice to be overlooked. Or maybe you've been overlooked for promotion at work. You work conscientiously, you've waited patiently in line, you've been loyal when other opportunities came along, but then they give it to someone else. They give the promotion to someone else, the ambitious, impressive newcomer, the boss's favourite. Uh, other people experience the shame of adultery, of a, a husband going through a midlife crisis who finds someone new and dumps you for someone younger and more exciting. It hurts to be overlooked. Or maybe you've spent your life competing for the attention or approval of hard-to-please parents. But it's always your perfect sibling who gets the attention and the applause. And they never notice you. Uh, reminds me of uh, Everyone Loves Raymond and uh, poor old Robert, uh, the big brother who has the huge inferiority complex. And his whole life he's felt like, it's all about Raymond, he says. Although I wonder if we also feel a little that way as a church sometimes. Uh, Ashfield Church has been here for 140 years. Uh, for the last who knows how long, uh, numbers have been fairly static. People come, people go. Occasionally someone becomes a Christian, but not as often as we like. Uh, maybe we catch, uh, we cast a, a slightly jealous glance over at Petersham, it was planted a few years ago and it, it seems like that's where the excitement is and Ashfield gets overlooked a little bit. Or maybe you think that you feel a little that way as part of the Christian church in general. Uh, we feel a little irrelevant and under threat. Not only do we not live in a post-Christian culture anymore, we're, not living in a, we're living in a post-post-Christian culture. People are not just against Christianity, it's just an irrelevancy. Uh, and it's easy for us to feel like our future is one where we're just going to dwindle down and get smaller and less relevant until we close the doors for good. And what can really hurt is when we start to think that it's not just people who overlook us, but God is doing it as well. We start to think that God has moved on to somewhere else that's more exciting or where people are more obedient or faithful. What are we doing wrong? Now I wonder if there weren't similar temptations that the church in Jerusalem was feeling uh, as they heard about what God was doing in the church at Antioch. Uh, our reading today looks at two great cities, Jerusalem and Antioch with two churches that are growing. Uh, very different, but with similarities. One is the mother, one is the daughter. And God's doing amazing things in both. People are becoming Christian. Both of them are, are bases for uh, Christian missionary outreach. Things had started in Jerusalem. Back in chapter 2, an incredible beginning. 3,000 people become Christians at Pentecost. They're all Jews following the Jewish Messiah. And the church grows with wonderful fellowship and generosity and intimacy. 
and they enjoy the favour of all the people in Jerusalem. But after a while, the honeymoon seems to end. Uh, The differences between Judaism and this new religion become more obvious and persecution begins. And it culminates in Stephen being stoned to death and Christians flee Jerusalem. But then God does amazing things in other places outside Jerusalem. Chapter 8, he does it with the Samaritans, uh, the long-term half-caste enemies of the Jews. Uh, Philip preaches the gospel there and many Samaritans are brought to repentance. And God pours his Holy Spirit on them, just as he did in Jerusalem. And then he did the same thing with the Gentiles, one step further removed, Cornelius, a Roman centurion. But at least he was a God-fearer, someone who worshipped the God of Israel. And Simon Peter himself was the agent. So there was no denying that God was doing something among these Gentiles. And now we get to chapter 11, verse 19, and we see the next stage. It's good news because it's not just a household of Gentiles and and those who are God-fearers. This is God's gospel going to a whole city of pagans, of Gentiles. It's great news. The gospel's just going from strength to strength and it's moving further and further from Jerusalem. And in verse 19, Luke picks up the story that he paused all the way back at chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1, Stephen is killed and the Christians flee uh, from flee Jerusalem. And here in chapter 11, verse 19, he picks up that story again and he says that some of those fleeing Christians make it as far as Antioch. Now, Antioch's 400 kilometres north of Jerusalem. It's a very well-established city. It's the number three city in the Roman Empire. Rome, Alexandria, and then Antioch. Now, these Jews who fled Jerusalem, they, they weren't local Palestinian Jews. Most of them probably couldn't even speak Aramaic anymore. They were Greek speakers. Uh, Some of them were from Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean. Uh, Others were from Cyrene, which I had to look it up. It's in North Africa. Uh, And so they were familiar with the Greek-speaking pagans who lived around them in these cities. They understood their language. They understood their customs. And so when they get to Antioch, they begin to tell these people about Jesus. And God did something amazing among these Gentiles. Verse 21, the Lord's hand was on them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Gentile people becoming Christians everywhere. And when the news gets back to Jerusalem, they choose Barnabas to go down and check it out. He's a good choice. He's from Cyprus as well. Uh, where these missionaries had come from. Perhaps Barnabas even knew them. And when he gets there, well, there's even more good news. Uh, Look at verse 23. When he arrived and saw evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Barnabas doesn't just watch, he joins in as well and God uses him to bring people into the kingdom. In fact, there are so many people becoming Christians, Barnabas needs help. It's one of those problems that you just love to have. And as he thinks about it, he knows just the man for the job, Saul, the converted persecutor. 
So Barnabas sends word up to Tarsus, where he'd sent Saul years before to escape persecution in Jerusalem. When Saul arrives, we're told that he spends a whole that they spend a whole year in Ephesus, teaching great numbers of people. And once again, the church is going from strength to strength. Verse 26. And then in verse 27, we see the ultimate sign of success, that the sign of maturity and stability. A visiting prophet describes a famine coming in Jerusalem, and so the Christians in the Antioch churches are in such a position of strength and stability and maturity, they take up a collection to go back to their starving brothers and sisters in Judea. This is the daughter church helping the mother. It started out as the mother sending out people to grow the daughter, but but now the, the daughter's returning some of that goodwill. It's just what Jesus had said would happen. Back in chapter 1, he commands the disciples, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And it's happening But I wonder how the Jerusalem church was feeling as the news from Antioch came back and as the collection arrives. How they felt if they were really honest. Did they rejoice or was there just this little bit of jealousy? A little bit, a feeling of being overlooked, of being hard done by, a bit of pride being hurt. Whether Jerusalem felt that way or not, This wasn't the case with God. He hadn't forgotten them. They hadn't been overlooked. God had plenty of work to do in Jerusalem. He'll rescue them and answer their prayers. And I wonder if that's not one of the points of chapter 12 and and why Luke places this story of Peter and the Jerusalem church here. You could take out chapter 12 and the story would just flow quite seamlessly. The end of chapter 11, Barnabas and Saul head off to Jerusalem with a collection. The end of chapter 12, we read, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem. But into the middle of that, Paul, uh, Luke zooms in on what God is doing in Jerusalem. He follows the money, if you like. And I think the point is this, what, what began in Jerusalem continues in Antioch. The message is the same, lots has changed, locations and personalities, but the same God is at work everywhere. They're different links in the same chain, Jerusalem, Antioch, Saul, Peter. Uh, I think that's the same reason the, uh, the, mess, the, the, the people in these chapters flip-flops from Saul to Peter to Saul to Peter. Uh, through these chapters as well. Uh, So let's zoom zoom in a little on chapter 12. That really is an extended introduction, but it's okay. I'm not going on proportionately. We're not going to be here for an hour. Uh, So let's zoom in on chapter 12. It is a great story, isn't it? It'd make a great movie. It'd have to be called The Great Escape if that wasn't already taken by another great movie. But it begins with King Herod. Now this is Herod Agrippa I. He's the grandson of Herod the Great uh, who built the temple. It's all very confusing. Look up a family tree one time, you'll be confused. Uh, But uh, this is uh, Herod Agrippa I. He wants to get the Jews on side. He arrests some Christians, including James the Apostle, and he puts him to death. 
And then he turns, then he turns his attention to Peter. And he's arrested and put in prison and it's Passover. And it's here we should be getting a feeling of deja vu. I'm sure I've heard these details before. That's what we should be thinking. Uh, we've got Herod, the Jews, an arrest. It's Passover. We should be thinking of Jesus. It's a different Herod, but the similarities are striking. Peter is following his Lord to prison and suffering. And we're filled with a sense that this is not going to turn out well. Uh, we've seen how it turns out for James. He lost his life. We, see, we know how it turns out with Jesus. He lost his life. And it seems like the believers in Jerusalem are also feeling uh, as if it's not going to turn out well. The church is praying. They're in verse 5, earnestly praying to God for him. As it turns out, I'm not quite sure what earnest means here, but uh, they're surprised, aren't they, when their prayer is actually answered. Uh, But God is not overlooking them. Uh, It's the night before Peter's trial. This is his last chance. It seems like he's in something like maximum security. He's chained to two guards. All three are fast asleep. Then in verse 7, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Now poor old Peter, he's probably not sleeping very soundly, it's the night before his death, but he gets woken up by a whack in the ribs, it's never a pleasant way to to wake up. And the angel's message is one that reminds us of the the very first Passover, when God delivered Israel out of Egypt. Put on your clothes and sandals, the angel said, Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Just as the Israelites had waited for God to rescue them, They ate the Passover meal with their bags packed, their sandals on their feet and their cloaks wrapped around them. Ready to escape. God delivered his people then and he's continuing to do it now. And that's what Peter does. He escapes. He follows the the angel past the sleeping guards, past a second set of guards and he comes to the first of two doors in this story. Now this door you'd think would be the toughest of the two doors to get through. You'd think it would be the toughest door to get through in the whole of Jerusalem. It's the solid iron prison gate. But as the angel walks up to it, it just swings open. And before Peter knows it, he's standing on his own at the end of the street. The angel's gone, he's out of prison, and he suddenly realises that it was all real. It it wasn't just wishful thinking. Look at what he realises, verse 11. Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. Expecting the worst, having endured persecution that forced Christians out of Jerusalem, feeling like God had abandoned them, James has died, they're expecting the worst. It's what we are feeling as we read this story. We're expecting the worst. We're expecting Peter to cop it. I wonder if this explains the Christian's reaction uh, when they find out that Peter's released. Everything the Jewish people were anticipating. God hasn't abandoned them. He hears their prayer 
and he answers it. As unbelieving as that prayer was, he answers it. Peter can't wait to share the good news. It may be the middle of the night, but there is a solid crowd at the prayer meeting at Mary's house. Uh, Verse 13, Peter knocks on the door. This is the second door, the one that should be easy to get into, but is harder than a prison door to get into. Rhoda, the servant girl, answers. Now, lots of important people in the Bible don't get their names recorded, but Rhoda does. It's it's great, isn't it? Uh, When she recognises Peter's voice, she's so excited, she doesn't open the door at all. She leaves him standing there, rushes off to tell everyone else. Uh, The irony is Peter had no trouble getting through the prison gate, getting out of jail, but this small wooden one is more trouble than that one. He can't get into the house. Uh, But Rhoda's not the only one who's painted in a bad light. Uh, When Rhoda delivers the news, no one will believe her, even though they've been praying all night for Peter's deliverance. It just goes to show that God only needs a mustard seed of faith, doesn't he? Have you got that much faith as you're praying for the people you want to become Christians, as you're praying for that guidance, as you're praying for that change? Well, Peter keeps knocking. I'm wondering, I'm guessing, he's starting to feel a little exposed. He's looking over his shoulder. He's expecting to hear the the, the boots on the cobblestones coming up behind him. He's an escaped convict. Eventually, Rhoda convinces them and they they come and they open the door for Peter. You can imagine the scene. It's pandemonium. There's crying, there's cheering, there's joy, there's everyone talking at once. There's there's way too much volume. (laughs) And so in verse 17, Peter motions with his hand. Keep quiet. The, The guards will be knocking on the door as well in a minute if you keep this racket up. And when they're finally quiet, he tells them the incredible story about how God hasn't abandoned them, how he's answered their prayers, just the way he did for the Israelites in Egypt. He asked them to pass the message on to James and the other brothers, to the leadership. And then we're told he heads off somewhere else, perhaps to a better hiding place. Uh, Maybe uh, this house will be the, the, the first place the guards raid in the morning. Uh, So Peter heads off. He's healthy. He's alive. Now that's more than we can say for the the poor old guards. Uh, The next morning, uh, they can't find Peter anywhere. There's there's a commotion. When Herod finds out, the guards are the ones executed, not Peter. And in fact, Herod himself can't escape. In contrast to Peter, who thought he would die but who escapes... Herod, who thinks he'll live, who we thought would live, actually dies. I think that's the point of this weird little story in verse 19 about how Herod receives a trade delegation and they flatter him because they want something from him. Verse 22, they say, uh, after his speech, this is the voice of a God, not a man. And because Herod said nothing and took the glory for himself, we're told an angel of the Lord struck him down. Now, this is the second angel doing some striking. Uh, Perhaps it's the same angel who'd struck Peter in the ribs and taken the chains off his wrists. But this angel strikes down Herod and the way that looks is that he's eaten by worms and he dies. 
Is it just the detail that Luke the doctor feels is important to record? Uh, I wonder if it's not uh, the man who accepted the praise that he was a god is humbled in the ultimate way and can't even protect himself from worms. Uh, This is the ultimate reversal, I think, uh, for Herod, who starts up and finishes down, or Peter, who is down and finishes up. It's the reversal for the Gospel as well. The Gospel was under threat, but verse 24 tells us it continued to increase and spread. It continues up. Herod couldn't stop it. God is still powerful and active, even here in Jerusalem, just like he is in Antioch. He hadn't forgotten. Now all of that should be a great encouragement for us, I think. When it looks like the action is not here, when the action's somewhere else, when it seems like we're on our own and we're weak and insignificant and powerless. I don't know what God's got in store for us here in, say, the next five years or not, but I know he'll still be at work. He'll still be rescuing us and protecting us and building his church. He won't overlook us. He's never done that and he never will. Our part is to keep striving to be obedient, to follow him, to be the church God wants. He will build his church as we keep our eyes fixed on him. He certainly continued to build the Jerusalem church. We're in chapter 12 and God rescues them. But if we jump forward to chapter 21, the apostle Saul, who by then was known as Paul, he makes it back to Jerusalem. And here's what had been happening in the meantime. Acts chapter 21, verse 19. Paul greeted the brothers, reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry... When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. God was still at work in Jerusalem. Let's keep our eyes on God, uh, the one who leads people to repentance. Let's be like the Jerusalem church, zealous, committed to him. And may God build us into a church like that church. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, what a great story. Uh, But it's, of course, it's far more than a story. This is a record of you at work uh, in your people, uh, growing your gospel, building your church. Uh, We pray that you'll help us to, to trust you to be at work amongst us. Uh, in the same way. Amen.